Welcome to In the Lead with UCEA, bringing you pivotal conversations with people making an impact on educational leadership preparation, practice, and policy. I'm Monica Bern-Jimenez, Executive Director of the University Council for Educational Administration. In today's episode, we hear from Dr. Shelby Cosner, Professor and Director of the Center for Urban Education Leadership at the University of Illinois, Chicago. A cornerstone of the University Principal Preparation Initiative was program mentorship. Each of the seven programs going through the redesign process were matched with a mentor program that had already successfully been through a redesign process of its own. UIC served in this pivotal role. How did UIC share its expertise with its mentee program at the University of Connecticut? How did it guide UConn to addressing the needs of its own context? Listen to find out. Welcome to In the Lead, Shelby, and thank you for being here. Thanks, Monica. UIC has a really unique history when it comes to program improvement. So can you tell us a little bit about UIC's story or processes to continuous improvement in your own program? I can. So to begin with, you're asking about the history of program improvement at UIC, as well as our work to mentor programs in the Wallace Foundation's UPPI project. And that occurred between 2016, 2017 and 2020, 2021. And so for that reason, my discussion today will really focus on historical continuous improvement work. That's work that I formally co-led with one of my colleagues beginning in 2008. Our work from 2008 to 2011 led to a major redesign of our program. Following that redesign in 2013, our program was selected as one of just two programs identified as exemplary by UCA in its inaugural competition. These were things that had preceded our mentoring work within UPPI. So I think it's important to set that as background or context. Yep. Thinking about our work at that point in time, I'll draw our attention to a number of things that were really elemental to our continuous improvement work. To begin with, as a program, we had to think about the kinds of things that we wanted to impact as a result of our preparation program. So starting from that perspective and as a group, we thought about proximal and distal impacts. Proximal impacts, meaning the kinds of experiences we wanted our students to have while they were in our program and the kinds of understandings and practices that we wanted our leaders to develop during the time they were in the program. We wanted them to be able to transition into principalships within a certain amount of time. We wanted them to be able to impact their organizations that they are leading, uh, both on the organization and instructional side, but also impacts that were um, related to the student experiences and student learning. These are all examples of the kinds of things that we built into our first impact logic. That helped us to understand the kinds of data that we would want to collect to help us to understand whether those impacts were being realized. So early on in our improvement process, we began with fashioning that improvement logic that allowed us to be able to understand whether and in what ways we were impacting the kinds of things that we imagined or that we were really aspiring to impact. As we did that, we recognized, for example, early in our improvement journey, that some of our more proximal impacts were ones that we didn't initially have a good data system on. So for example, we had much more data initially on whether or not our students were transitioning into principalships and if so, how quickly. 
and the kind of impacts that UIC leaders were having on their schools, we had a weaker data system around the kind of leadership practices we were cultivating as a part of the program experience. And that was because early iterations of the program did not have work tasks embedded in the program that would have allowed us to understand leader practice development during the program experience. Mm -hmm. So a part of our early journey was really beginning to devise new assignments and projects and classes that were more practice forward to provide that sort of an information stream as a part of our improvement work. So that one part of our work was developing that impact logic and the data system that we could use that would help us to find patterns of problems. Another part of our early improvement work was really coming to learn an improvement process that we would use. Early on in our improvement work, I brought to the program a cycle of inquiry, a very particular cycle of inquiry. One of my colleagues, Mark Smiley, had done some work early on on improvement processes and looking at a variety of processes that he had identified in that book, but also in looking at processes that had been used in schools really throughout the country, I developed an improvement process that we used in our cycle of inquiry early on in our improvement work. It began with finding problems in the program and using that information to generate notable redesign. And so a second part of our early work was really coming to agreement on an improvement process, helping all the faculty learn that process, and then using that process to guide or inform our work as we progress through it. A part of that process, because it hinged on finding problems in our program, um, meant that as we were working through the cycle, we had to think about all aspects of the program that we wanted to investigate. So when I'm thinking about learning about our program, for us, that meant learning about recruitment and selection as an early part of the program experience. It meant looking at program experiences and student understanding and development or practice development. And each one of those became a part of the program experience that we wanted to understand as potentially being problematic to the program, something that wasn't delivering in the way that we would expect. And so I think for programs that are thinking about that work, really thinking about breaking the program down into its elements. Selection and recruitment are early parts of that. And when we thought about the program experience, we really separated the academic side of the program to the clinical side of the program, recognizing that both of those sort of major parts of the program experience could be places that were sort of underperforming Hmm. in the program. So uh, the other thing that I would suggest that was really an, an important part of our early improvement work are two things. The first thing that I was talking about, the improvement logic, the cycle of inquiry, those things are really what I would call the improvement infrastructure or machinery. Mm -hmm. But we had to develop an improvement culture and improvement work routines. Mm -hmm. And so an early part of our work that I led as early as 28 and moving forward was shaping a culture where people in the program, tenured clinical leadership coaches, all were very interested in working collaboratively and collectively on program improvement. In higher ed, that can be a very different culture than exists in some institutions. And so a part of our early improvement journey meant very, very deliberately cultivating that culture, thinking about the beliefs and values and norms that we needed if we were going to harness continuous improvement as an ongoing engine in our program. And then with that culture where people were predisposed to collaborate, we had to then develop very particular collaboration routines We had to think very carefully about who would need to collaborate 
and for what purposes. And so, for example, we thought very specifically about there are times where everybody in the program needs to have the same understanding of something. Hmm. And we can't have 12 people having different understandings, for example, of a cycle of inquiry. We teach a cycle of inquiry in our program. So we all had to have a shared understanding of that cycle of inquiry. So it meant we needed a work routine that would bring every single person together so we could put a cycle up, we could talk about it, we could argue about it, if you will, and come to agreement on what it meant to all of us. That's an example of a work routine that brought everybody together for a specific purpose, shared meaning-making around one thing that was critical in our program. And there were several like that. There were times where we had work routines that brought a subset of our group together. For example, when one group of individuals would be working on a strand of the program, our organizational strand of the program, we needed to bring those individuals together to collaborate more closely. We also developed collaborative work routines so that when we were beginning to phase in the redesign, we phased it in one semester at a time. So a cohort would experience the program as they move through the program one semester at a time. So in the first semester, the faculty that were teaching courses in that semester presented the syllabi that they had created. We all were in the room with them as they presented those syllabi. And we had a chance to give them warm and cold feedback about the syllabi that they were planning to enact. That's an example of another work routine where two faculty members who were teaching that semester shared their syllabi and talked through it and where everybody else was present to offer oral feedback, both positive and negative, but also written feedback that followed. Hmm. We followed that routine with that same group of faculty coming together at the end of the semester talking with us about what actually happened, not what was planned, but what actually happened so that we could understand modifications or adjustments that they made and how they were thinking about the cohort's learning experience, where the students were at with their learning, things that might not have been covered sufficiently or where student learning was maybe lagging. Mm -hmm. So the next group of faculty members to receive that group of students really understood how the syllabi were, were enacted and understood the kinds of big understanding students were leaving with and some of their edges of growth, so they could consider that in their courses. Those same two faculty members would then present their syllabi, and we would go through the same routine then of having faculty give them warm and cold feedback. I share all of that to give examples of different collaboration routines that were a part of our improvement work. The last thing I would say about our improvement work, and I, again, I'm going back historically and thinking about our work during that time frame, is that it really has been about continuous improvement not improvement for episodic redesign that happens at one point in time. There are times when we've gone through improvement where many improvements have led to almost overhaul or a redesign of the program. But on successive years, we're constantly trying to find patterns of problems by using that cycle of inquiry. But the grain size of problems may be smaller. But it's an ongoing process that leads us on any given year to use our cycle of inquiry and the data sources that we have to find the things that are next edges of growth and then to focus our improvement attention on those areas during that year. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. And I think you're highlighting a couple of things for me. In this series of podcasts around UPPI, we've really been trying to focus in on the faculty experience and what learning and reculturing do faculty need to do in a program in order to be able to engage in a redesign moment, but then to become sort of like you're saying, this culture of continuous improvement. And one thing I haven't asked the others, but what you're telling me brings to mind is the idea that oftentimes people 
and not just faculty, but people think that you have to have a culture of improvement or a culture of trust or a culture of collaboration before you can begin to do improvement work. And what I've heard you say and what I've heard the other program directors say as well is that actually that culture gets created as you're doing improvement work. So it's not like an either or because it helps if you're already cooperative in order to begin to develop collaborative relationships and then move the entire program and the culture of the program forward. And so, I mean, I was just wondering about how you have seen your program relationships, your faculty's attitudes towards their own learning change and evolve over time. Well, let me say something before I answer that question, that it goes back to some of your first comments about that culture and do you have to have the culture to begin the work? And then I'll move forward and talk about our culture of learning currently. Mm -hmm. But when I think about it, your point really is relevant that you do not wait to start the improvement work when you have a culture that has fully realized a culture of continuous improvement. But one of the things that I think catalyzed our work early on were a couple of things. And then I'll talk about some of the things that helped us to cultivate that culture over time. Early on, we had a critical mass of people that were predisposed to collaborate. Not everyone, but we had a critical mass. I do think that helped us in the early days. But I think another thing that really helped us in the early days is that we recognized to cultivate the culture of collaboration meant that you had to get people engaged in collaboration. Hmm that doing the work of collaboration would allow people to build something and see the benefit of building something together and would ultimately bring them more and more into why this is so important and wanting to do it. And so early on, we had to pay attention to seeking external funds to support our collaboration. Hmm. Scholars every year write grants to support their work. We really advocate that as scholars are writing grants to support their work, that some of that writing grants to support their work go towards continuous improvement work, not just the research enterprise of the house. Mm -hmm. Because I do believe that early on, very early on, as early as 2006 and seven, predating that improvement work that we started in 2008, we had work to get external money to support collaboration for program improvement. Mm -hmm. And so because we had some people that were predisposed to collaborate and because we sought external money that would support collaboration time that allowed us to be able to compensate people that wouldn't otherwise be compensated for this sort of work in the exact same way that you would compensate researchers to conduct a research study. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to allocate those dollars to bring people into these processes of collaboration. I think that became important. We had to think very carefully about once we bring people in, how to use their time wisely. So there was a great deal of planning to ensure that when we were coming together, our time was used in the most productive fashion possible. Because if you're having people value collaboration or learn to value collaboration, you have to ensure that when you're coming together, it's highly productive. So there's a great deal of offline planning to think about how to ensure the experiences were productive. And thinking about, as I said, those collaboration routines, we had to think very carefully about who needed to collaborate, when did they need to collaborate, and really formalize routines of collaboration. I think that was something that happened very early on, and it helped us to begin to cultivate or strengthen that part of our culture. But then let me say that along the way, we had to pay attention to cultivating this culture through our faculty hires. Mm -hmm. Because as any program understands, you're going to have faculty coming in and out of your program. And so we had to deliberately, when we were advertising for tenured faculty positions or tenure line faculty positions, let people know that we were a program that was engaged in continuous improvement, 
that we wanted people that had strong scholarly identities and research identities, but also that were predisposed to collaborate. We put that in the job description and we talked about that and showed people our improvement work when they came to campus for site visits because we wanted no surprises about the kind of program they were stepping into. But then also, once we hired individuals that said, yes, I'm predisposed to collaborate in that way, and I'm really interested in being a very strong scholar, but also engaging in improvement work, then we had to socialize them into that work. And so very early on, between 2014 and 2016, we had two tenure-line faculty members come in, and I had to pay close attention to socializing those individuals into collaboration, which meant that I had to get a pot of money And I had to immediately, within the first two years of their work, engage them in really deep collaboration work so that they could right away see what it meant to collaborate with colleagues on program improvement work and so that they could value it. So I say all of those things to say, I think those are things that we did very much along the way and that we continue to think about. It has led to a program now in 2023 where we've got 15 to maybe 18 individuals across roles, program leaders, tenure and tenure line faculty clinical faculty, leadership coaches that meet typically on a monthly basis for ongoing continuous improvement. Mm. There wouldn't be a person in our group that would say no to that. They very much as a group are committed to working collectively in that way. And in a time when we do not have, for example, money supporting our ongoing program improvement work, Mm. but so people value working collectively. They value knowing that when we link our arms together, there are things that we can do in service of our students that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do individually. But I think we're at the point where we are in 2023 because of work that we've been doing really for 15 to 18 years to build that culture over time and to sustain it. I mean, I really appreciate sort of, you know, the time to go deep into your own story as a program. So I I appreciate that. And I can also hear just from what you're saying that you over that all that time really develop a framework and language and processes for to enhance the work that you're doing, which in my mind, it's oh, okay, that's why you were selected. That's why UIC was selected as a mentor program to help programs that may not have that language or infrastructure or whatever. So if we can switch gears a little bit and if you could tell me about your relationship with UConn, how you got to know their context and how you were able Able to guide them through their own redesign process? Yeah. So the process really started with me having big chunks of time at UConn, physically in their College of Education, to meet all of the faculty, to spend time in all sort of crevices of the college, to hear from them about sort of their hopes and dreams individually and collectively before we even started to think about what improvement would look like. I can still to this day remember my first two-day experience on their campus and having a chance to interact with the entire faculty and really wandering around the college. And it was important because it allowed me to understand or begin to understand that setting and what they valued, um, their aspirations, their hopes and dreams, how individuals thought about their work, how they collectively were starting to think about their work. Because from um, a perspective of being a mentor program, it's not about bringing what you're doing in your setting to another institution in terms of the preparation program experience Mm -hmm. or what we're wanting our graduates at UIC to be able to do when they lead schools in Chicago. It's really about helping an organization realize their own unique aspirations and hopes 
And so the lovely thing initially was people were really inviting of me coming in and spending time and asking questions and them just being an open book and telling me about their setting and uh, about what they were hoping for in the future. They also very early on were good about communicating with me challenges and things that they were experiencing that they knew were going to be things we'd have to navigate along the way. Ultimately, after that, let's call it an intensive experience in their setting. And I would come back and be intensively involved in their setting, usually about every quarter or maybe three times, three to four times a year, where I would be in their setting for one to maybe two or three days at a time. But in addition to that, it meant also populating a small team that was going to be the lead team at UConn. So a part of that, they had a three-person team. It was a really powerful team. We had two people that were in clinical lines, one person that was in a tenured line. They really represented different vantage points of the program, which I think was really critical. And part of it was first beginning to develop that team. They had self-identified that they would work together. But an early part of my work was helping those three individuals operate as an effective team for this project. A part of the work really hinged on early on letting them know that my job wasn't to come in and be directive. My job wasn't to come in and tell them, here's what we've done at UIC. My job was to help them to learn from our process Mm -hmm. because it was more about, I want to be able to illustrate a process that we've used so you can use a process that will inform your own work, but your work is going to be idiosyncratic. Mm -hmm. And it's not because your context is so different than our context. And so it meant laying the ground rules so they knew I wasn't going to come in and be directive and that they knew it was going to be a safe space. It was going to be a very private space. We could have the really difficult, challenging conversations, the really honest, unvarnished conversations about what was happening so that I could really be a thought partner. So that three-person team really had to be cultivated as a team. We had to create it as a space that was safe and we had to set the boundaries for how we were going to work together. And then I needed to learn a little bit about what they most thought they were going to need from me. Mm. And in addition to me really helping them to learn about an improvement process, improvement language, improvement approaches and infrastructure, what they were saying is, we know that we will need support in planning, that we know because we've not been through this journey before, even if you help us with this infrastructure, we won't be able to plan in a detailed way because we've not done it before. So we will rely on you more as a thought partner for the planning part of it Mm -hmm. so that in increments in every six to eight to 10 weeks, can you really roll up your sleeves and jointly work with us? Don't tell us to go plan, but actually jointly work with us to actually plan the next six or eight or 10 weeks of work that we're going to be leading here. Mm -hmm. We also think that there are going to be key times where your facilitation is going to be critical because we want to engage in the conversation with our colleagues as opposed to be facilitating our conversation with our colleagues. And so I think as a process went along, my mentoring role in particular leaned heavily into teaching about impact logics, teaching about the kinds of data that you would need to collect and helping them to actually design data collection instruments and collect those data, teaching them about a cycle of inquiry and guiding them through the cycle, but then engaging intermittently in joint work. I'm using Meredith Honig's term now in joint work Mm -hmm. and really working to help them plan segments of work as a three-person team and then come in periodically to facilitate aspects of that work so they could really be members of the dialogue with their colleagues as opposed to be facilitators. I felt like that was a big part of my sort of lead work Now, back at the ranch was a team at UIC. (laughs) And so in addition to sort of all of that work that was happening at UConn, there were times when 
I would bring either members of my team at UIC to UConn because there was something that UConn wanted to work on where I knew there were other members of my team that had additional expertise that could really help UConn with an area of work. For example, when UConn was working on designing their data system, I brought the designers and the managers of our data system to UConn for numbers of days at different points in time, Mm -hmm. not only to illustrate our data system, but to work with them on the early days of creating or designing their data system. And likewise, when UConn was ready to start examining, they had identified problems in their program that they wanted to resolve, and they were wanting to begin to look at different iterations of what their program experience could look like. We brought their team to UIC where they could learn from all of our faculty and we had an intensive on-site visit, highly curated, where they said, here are very particular things that we're wanting to learn about. They wanted in their visit, one of the visits, they wanted to learn deeply about our clinical experience and leadership coaching. They also wanted to learn very much about work tasks that we were designing that were really allowing faculty members to see the practice development of leaders in their program. And so we curated a two-day experience at UIC that really engaged the entire team, plus many of our students, to allow them to get windows into what we were doing, not to grab anything that we were doing Mm -hmm. and immediately take it back to UConn, but as inspiration for ideas. And so that gives you a sense of sort of how we worked with UConn during the UPPI project. Right. And it's, again, very comprehensive, right? And and I think in some ways, the three-person team with you seems, right, to have been trying to keep the visioning or the coordination at a higher level so that it would be more comprehensive, more holistic views of the program as opposed to, like you had said, small episodic improvements without really thinking about the cohesion of the entire experience for students. And we've seen that over and over with all the UPPI programs that we've talked to. So there's a lot about the technical pieces, the learning pieces, some of the administrative infrastructure pieces. I'm curious as to some of the more affective pieces when programs, and I don't mean specifically UConn right now, because I know you work with lots of different universities, but the balance between the patient's of their own process, the patience of that context and understanding that context, and then when they could do a little more and when to push or when to ask a different question that might let them get to a different place balanced with the other inclination that we have, which is to go really fast and to like make these quick improvements while you're trying to say, well, there's this bigger picture in mind that we need to have. And so navigating that, what was that like for you? So I think... Part of my work as a mentor across many programs, this isn't just specific to UConn, is to really lean in what I know from my own research and work as a leadership coach. So I want to sort of bring that into the space. You're talking about, you know, how do you press? How do you encourage a group to reach beyond where they might be working at? And there are two things that I think often really help me to do that in a way where I'm not pressing, but it leads to the outcome of pressing. And that is using inquiry questions. Mm -hmm. So often when you see something and you're thinking, boy, there are additional areas that could be worked on, you see an opportunity. And you could say, why don't you do this? That seems very directive. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it's moving away from somebody having agency to really think about what might work in their setting. But when I can start to see something that's an opportunity, Oftentimes it allows me to step back for a moment and even a day or two or three to really think about 
what would be the really powerful inquiry questions mm. that will allow somebody to ponder this in a way that I'm pondering it on my own right now? I have something that's allowing me to maybe more quickly ponder this. But what I want to do is I want to think about how I can create an opportunity for them to inquire. And so almost always, sometimes in a very quick moment, I can think about the right inquiry questions, but sometimes I can't. And I recognize, put a pin in that. You know that you are going to want to push around this, but you're going to have to think about the inquiry approach into that. And so for me, sometimes that's slowing things down in my own perspective so that I can think about the right two or three points of inquiry that allow a team then to open a space up more broadly and start to inquire. And almost always when you're doing that inquiry, it allows for somebody to start thinking in a way that they weren't thinking about before. And inevitably, things that were broader on the horizon start to be envisioned. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I often then bring into the equation are examples of things that might illustrate something. And again, I might bring in an illustration, not to say again to do this, but to say, when you look at this illustration in comparison to what you guys are thinking about, what do you begin to ponder or wonder about? So I find that the press is important, but it's often not pressing in the moment. It's me seeing an opportunity and taking a few days of my own time as a coach to think about really in a deliberate way, what is a a better move? And it almost always lies in this space of inquiry and thinking about carefully the kinds of inquiry questions that would be really appropriate and who needs to be there when we're inquiring. That's also important. And then creating that inquiry context where, I, again, I may bring in an illustration or example, but pose a question around it to have the team ponder or wonder. Right. Yeah. This is my last question. Because <laughs> I could talk to you for a long time, Shelby. Oh. <laughs> um, is around how the mentor programs and the mentor coaches, how you all worked together and, and what ways were you able to learn from each other through the UPPI? So the mentors had opportunities together when the UPPI convenings occurred in the UPPI project. Those were all in person as opposed to virtual. And so typically two, maybe three times, but two times a year, the Wallace Foundation would convene all of the participants, typically in New York, where we would have usually two days of learning experiences and where a part of that time allowed mentors to come together. And mentors would then have an ability to really have, let's call it a self-managed group, where we could identify the kinds of things that we thought would be developmentally useful for our conversations and use our time in those ways. Now, I would tell you very honestly, we had those times and then periodically individual mentors would call virtual calls together to get the mentors together when we had something that was pressing and we knew that we wanted to work through it. Mm -hmm. To me, I think an edge of growth for projects like this would be to think about how to even more fully develop a learning community of mentors. Because episodically, we did learn from one another Mm -hmm. and it was powerful and important. But I think a more formalized, sustained learning experience for the mentors in a month-by-month learning cadence would really even amplify the work because you would be able to, as elements of work were taking place, have more just-in-time comments and conversations around it to really surface practices that are working and to codify the kind of tools and materials and port them across the mentoring relationships in a way that's just in time. There's so many things that you're doing in that moment and you're developing tools and materials to work with your mentors and really formalizing processes to really develop mentors around that machinery and deploy it quickly would have enhanced what we were doing. We were meeting typically at least once a semester and sometimes twice a semester. But I think a more frequent cadence would have been useful. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, because I think in part to be able to identify what you're learning in addition to sort of problems that might be existing across all the programs, but then also to continue the improvement process to live it right within the scope of any project. And so I think that those are wonderful opportunities for mentors to continue their own growth as well as in the relationship with their programs. Oh, I was just going to say one other thing, Monica, and, and that is just that I think in all of this, both the mentors and within the programs, it really hinges on trusting relationships. Right. So I just wanted to really underscore that paying a lot of attention to developing and sustaining trusting relationships is important because in all of this, you're talking about having really vulnerable conversations and those things wouldn't happen without that relationship. Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's one of the hardest things to build and one of the most fragile things that we carry, right? And so I think that's really important and not just mentor to program, but even among the mentors themselves, right? Mm-hmm. To be able to sort of bring a, a challenge or a question to the group. Anyway, as I said, Shelby, I could talk to you for a lot longer. <laughs> about a whole host of things. But thank you so much for coming and talking with us. Thank you so much for being so open around your own learning over the history, as you say, of UIC and how you bring that learning to support our colleagues um, trying to do this really important work. So thank you so much, Shelby. Look forward to seeing you in person someday soon. And again, I can't thank you enough. Thanks, Monica. Bye, everyone. In the Lead is produced by University FM. We'd like to thank the Wallace Foundation for their support of this podcast and you, our listeners, for your commitment to improving educational leadership and policy to create equitable, ethical, and socially just outcomes for each child. 